Both of these are given in reference to the armor of God. Now, Paul is speaking to us as soldiers. He's speaking to us as warriors who have just been called to battle. We've been called to arms, and we must prepare to get ourselves on the front line. But preparation for warfare does not simply entail grasping your weapons and running to the front. No, it requires clothing ourselves in the appropriate body armor for protection against the enemy. Before we step on the battlefield, we first must take up and put on the armor of God. Now, it's important to realize here that every soldier, every soldier in the army of God is given every piece of armor. There isn't a single person in the body of Christ who does not have access to the armor. You get it at the moment of salvation. The question is never one of, of provision. The question is always one of submission. Defeat never occurs from a lack of faithfulness on God's part to provide, but from a lack of faithfulness on our part to submit to his instructions. And his instructions are, before you face the battle, you must take up and put on the armor of God. You want to know why there's so much moral, spiritual, and doctrinal defeat in the church? It's because so many of us have a form of godliness, but we lack the power thereof because, truth be told, we have either not been taught the word, and frankly, some churches are now designing themselves to be such that do not teach the word any longer because you can't get people to come. It's either because... You've not been taught the word, or having been taught, we are unwilling to obey. We're unwilling to obey. We prefer our own methods of battling temptation over God's methods, and are rendered impotent for the battle because of it. Now, if it is your intention to be found standing for the glory of God at the end of the next battle against sin, you must, you must there is no option. You must take up, you must put on the armor of God. But then the question arises, what is the armor? What is the armor? If it's something that I'm supposed to put on every day of my life, what is it? Well, as we will see in these next two messages, putting on the spiritual armor does not involve any secret wisdom or some super spiritual uh, knowledge that requires some deeper life teaching that is only available to a higher class of spiritual elite people. Rather, Paul is simply using a rhetorical device here as a fresh call to bring the bedrock truths of the Word of God to bear on your temptation to sin. There's nothing new here. There's no new techniques. There's no new disciplines. And that's what I want us to discover along the way here. I want us to discover that behind every piece of armor, you find two things. You find a doctrine and a discipline. Behind every piece of armor, there is a doctrine, a teaching, a truth, and there is a discipline, something that we are called to do. Each piece of armor is given to remind us of a basic truth and a basic practice or discipline of the Christian life. There are no new doctrines, no disciplines, Nothing out of the ordinary found here. 
Like us, the Ephesians had been taught very well what the basic truths of the Word of God is. The fundamental doctrines of the Bible were clear. But they, like us, needed to be shown how to bring those truths to bear on their daily lives, their daily battle against sin. And by the way, beloved, this is what... um, what Paul is really doing here is the essence of what we call biblical or neuthetic counseling. This is really at its core. When I encourage you to come to this quarterly conference that we have on how to bring the Word of God to bear in your life or how to disciple or how to counsel people using the Word of God, this is all we're talking about. What Paul is doing here is identifying a major problem that every believer faces and bringing the truth of the Word of God to bear upon it. It's very practical. And that's what biblical neuthetic counseling is all about. It assumes, as Paul did, that God has given every truth we need for life and godliness in the pages of his all-sufficient word. There is no problem in your life. There is no problem that stems from your heart that is not in some way sufficiently addressed in his word. Now, what is the question that Paul, or the problem that Paul is trying to help us with? Simply this. How does a Christian respond to demonic and satanic temptation to sin against God? How does a true believer respond to a temptation to sin against God? To answer that question, Paul points us to seven doctrines and seven disciplines. Seven doctrines and seven disciplines. To put them all together in one rhetorical package that he calls, cleverly, the armor of God. Now let's look at the first few pieces together. We're not going to have time, obviously, to go through all seven, and you're not surprised by that. But I am going to try to make it through the first three, and we'll see. So here's our text, beginning with verse 13. And we haven't read this yet, so let's read the whole thing. Finally, I'm sorry, start with uh, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on, there's, there's our injunction, our command. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up. The full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having gird your loins with the truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you will... uh, by which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, with this in view, be on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Those are the seven pieces of armor. Now let's look at the first one, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And we spent the whole last message on what is the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with what? The truth. The truth. The first piece of armor is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. 
Now, as a citizen of Rome, Paul would have been more than a little familiar with the kind of armor worn by Roman soldiers. He was intimately acquainted with Roman soldiers uh, on several occasions because he found himself on the opposite side of the law, at least they thought he was. Aside from the obvious pieces of body armor that we all know about, every soldier would have worn a less conspicuous but no less necessary piece of equipment. It was the belt or the leather apron that would have been worn around his waist. And it was crucial for battle because it added support to the midsection, much like if you go to one of our uh, local hardware warehouses, you, you always see the guys wearing a belt around their waist. Why? Because they've got heavy work to do. They've got hard work to do. And you need that extra back support if you're going to be doing a lot of that. You need a strong belt. It adds support to your midsection. And it also, secondly, held a lot of the major pieces of the body armor. It held them together. He pulled it kind of all together so that nothing would be flying around and getting in the way when they were in battle. In Paul's mind, this is similar to the role of truth in the Christian life. This is what truth does. Now, I said that with each piece of armor, there is a doctrine. And I think the doctrine that Paul is reminding us of is the basic doctrine of absolute truth. Absolute truth. The very bedrock of all biblical teaching is that there are things in the world that are absolutely true, and there are things in the world that are absolutely false. That's amazing that we find ourselves in a time where that idea is novel, that there actually is something that's true and something that's false. It's stunning to me that people have to write books like the one Josh McDowell wrote about six or eight, ten years ago called, uh, uh, what was it, Tr- Good and Bad Truth, and, and, and uh, I forget what it was called, but it was real simple. <laughs> um, but this is the time that we live in. We don't believe that there is things uh, called truth and falsehood. Some things are true and some things are not true. And the reason they are absolute is the sense that they are always, always, always true or false, regardless of circumstances, times, cultures, and current trends. The name of the book was Right and Wrong. It's amazing that we have to write a book on that. What's right? What's wrong? Is there even such a thing as right and wrong? Our culture would say, no. No. There's just different circumstances that can be interpreted differently. So something that looks evil could actually be good. And something that looks good could actually be evil. The doctrine of absolute truth is grounded in the doctrine, listen, it is grounded in the doctrine of an absolute God. An absolute God who is, here's the big word, immutable. He is immutable, which means he doesn't change. We sing, great is thy faithfulness, right? In him there is no shadow of turning. He's not like a sundial. Every time you look at, at the shadow, it's in a different place, you know, which is real helpful when you're trying to, uh, to do time. But when you're trying to, to trust 
a being who says he is God, you don't want him moving all over the map. You don't want to be trying to find him. Where is he today? That's not God. You always know where God is. You always know where the sun is. It is at the blazing center of our solar system, and so is God. In our lives, God is always where he is. He is immutable. He never changes. And that is the basis of absolute truth. Absolute truth is grounded, it's rooted, and built upon the doctrine of an absolute God. He is the measuring rod against which all propositions are deemed either true or false. Somebody comes along and tells you that something is true, some doctrine or some... uh, way of life, you just take that thing and you take it and you put it up against God and say, does this measure up? Put it up against God's word. Does it measure up? If it doesn't, it's false. This is not real complicated stuff, folks. I mean, we get so bogged down into trying to figure out what's true and false and, and our culture misses the mark so extremely because here's the reason. Their problem isn't with truth. Their problem is with God. Because if you don't have an absolute God, then you cannot have absolute truth. You get God out of the equation, and truth is whatever you want it to be. My truth may not necessarily be your truth. Your truth may not necessarily be my truth. But if there is an immutable, eternal, absolute God, then there is a right and wrong. God has made this easy for us. He's really made it easy for us because he has revealed himself in a book. His written word. So that if we want to know what's true, we compare what we hear with what we read. What do we hear? Well, let's go back to what we've read. Richard Verbrand once said, God is the truth. The Bible is the truth about the truth and theology is the truth about the truth about the truth when you read the apostle paul you discover that he was extremely concerned that we embrace the truth just think of his letter to the ephesians i mean we could spend all morning on this right just to the letter of the ephesians ephesians 1 13 it was the truth that brought about salvation in our lives the apostle says in him also You, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. It was the truth that brought you to Christ. Ephesians 4.21 tells us that truth is in what? Jesus. Truth is in Jesus. And Jesus himself said in John 14.6, I am the truth. Ephesians 4, 24, Paul says, Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the what? Truth. To be born again, to be a born again man or woman, is to be a new creature created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The truth is what brings forth in your life righteousness and holiness. Truth is the root. And so the doctrine of absolute truth is everything to the follower of Christ. It is foundational. 
If there is no such thing as absolute truth that is grounded in an absolute God in Christ, then our faith is nothing more than a house of cards, and we can have no assurance of eternal life. But despite the rhetoric of modern philosopher, beloved, truth lives. Truth lives. Gordon Clark writes, now you're going to have to follow me on this. Here we go. Gordon Clark writes this. Skepticism is the position that nothing can be demonstrated. In other words, nothing is true. Nothing can be demonstrated. And how, we ask, can you demonstrate that nothing can be demonstrated? The skeptic asserts that nothing can be known. In his haste, he says that truth was impossible. And is it true that truth is impossible? For if no proposition is true, then at least one proposition is true. The proposition, namely, that no proposition is true. If truth is impossible, therefore, it follows that we have already attained it. Or if you couldn't follow that, Ronald Nash writes this. Whenever we find someone saying that no one can know anything, it is only natural to wonder whether or how the skeptic knows that. Beloved, truth lives. We can suppress it. We can attack it. We can deny it. But truth lives because God lives. And so often in our spiritual warfare, we get sidetracked. We get bumped off the path on this very issue. You want to know why the gospel of Judas has come to the fore these days? You know why the most popular movie coming up in May is going to be uh, the Da Vinci Code? Because Satan will do anything to attack the truth. I think in my lifetime there has never been such a formidable attack on the truth as there is today. All you have to do is walk into one of the major bookstores and find the area that talks about uh, the Da Vinci Code or the religion or philosophy area, and you will find a slew of brand new books that question the authority of the Word of God. And they're all new. And they're all designed for one thing, to tell you that there is no such thing as truth. Now, many of them will also say, but there is a God, but there is no such thing as truth. And they don't see any problem with that. Beloved, if there is a God, There is truth. And Romans 1 tells us the truth about God is obvious because he's made it obvious to us through what he's created. Therefore, you are without excuse. Don't be skeptical. Be obedient. Be submissive. All of this is simply to say that to reject the idea of truth is folly grounded in a desire to dispense with God. But, of course, the Bible has already explained that for us in Psalm, for instance, 14, verse 1. David tells us, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You're a fool. So the doctrine that Paul reminds us of is the foundational doctrine of absolute truth grounded in an absolute God. And this is where Christianity begins. For as the Lord himself has said, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
Truth is foundational to the Christian life. It is the piece of the armor that holds all the other pieces together. It's the only thing that, that can protect us from the errors of the enemy which he hopes to ensnare us in. And that's why Ephesians 4, 14 through 15, Paul explains that the reason Christ gave the church certain leaders, namely apostles and prophets and pastor teachers and evangelists, is so that we would, quote, no longer be children tossed about here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of what? Doctrine, that's truth, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. You see, where truth is absent, error abounds. And error is the root of deception. And deception brings men to ruin. And so if you want to stand firm against the schemes of the master liar, the first thing you need to do is master the truth. You need to master the truth. Listen, every part of the spiritual armor must be mastered if you are going to do spiritual warfare. You have to master the truth. You've got to be in the Word every day of your life, mastering the Word of God. And that's where we are. Jesus said, you know the truth. Uh, You will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. You want to be set free? You got a, a sin that you're struggling with? You want to be set free from that? There's only one way to do it. You've got to start with the truth. You've got to be honest with yourself, number one. As my former uh, drug addict friends used to say, denial is not a river in Egypt. <laughs> You've got to be truthful with yourself. You've got to be able to say, you know what? I'm in sin. All excuses aside, I've made excuses for this. I've blame shifted. I've done everything to try to deflect it. The reality is I sin. I am in sin against God and perhaps against a brother or a sister in Christ. I'm in sin. You've got to tell the truth. You've got to speak the truth to your own heart. Or you'll never be set free. Truth lives because God in Christ is truth. But here's the thing, beloved. Knowing this doctrine is not enough. The belt of truth, you've got to put it on. But putting it on means you not only know the truth, you not only know the doctrine that's behind the analogy of a belt, but with the doctrine comes a discipline. With the doctrine comes a discipline. And again, Paul has already discussed the discipline side of it in his letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 4, 15, he says, But speaking the truth, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up, all of us, in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So knowing the truth should lead us to speaking the truth, speaking it to one another, speaking it to our own souls. You remember David in the Psalms saying, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in despair within me? Put your hope in God. What was he doing? He was speaking the truth to his own soul because your own heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? It is out to deceive you. And David knew that. And the only prescription for defeating that is to speak the truth. Ephesians 4.25, Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, For we are members of one another. 
You see, it's not good enough just to believe the truth. You've got to practice the truth. You've got, first of all, to speak the truth. And speaking the truth doesn't necessarily mean preaching it to one another, thumping each other with the Bible. Rather, it is a reference to truthful character. Truthful character. The first thing we do to prepare ourselves for battle is to saturate our souls with the truth of the Word of God and then take uh, pains to be sure that we are living according to that truth so that our heart is true. Listen, putting on the belt doesn't mean just bring the doctrine. Bringing the doctrine is of no use to you if you're not willing to practice the doctrine. If you're not willing to have your life characterized in truth, people ought to be about to uh, people ought to be able to look at your life and say there is a true Christian. There is one who truly lives what he says he believes. No hypocrisy. There is one whose life is not wrecked with contradiction. Remember when Jesus saw Nathanael for the first time? He said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, no hypocrisy, no falsehood. Could that be said of us? A lot of times when I have to deal with sin in the body, when the elders are confronted with dealing with a brother or sister who is racked with sin, we find, you know what the root of it was? They were just unwilling to be honest with themselves. They were unwilling to say, Lord, this is what your word says about my heart. And they came up with every kind of excuse, every kind of, sh- of shifting of blame to make excuses for why they were living an unrighteous and unholy life or had some kind of a secret deal over here that nobody else knew about, not even the wife that they were engaging in that was sinful. Nobody knew about it. They were living a lie. And you know what? Satan had them by the throat. And nobody knew it. Nobody knew it. The kids didn't know. The wife didn't know. The employer didn't know. And it's not always sexual immorality. Sometimes it's stealing from the office. Sometimes it's, uh, I don't know, there could be any number of things in your life. I heard the story this week, and I'll probably not get it exactly right, but uh, Sir Arthur Kennan Doyle, who wrote uh, Sherlock Holmes, right? He apparently, it is said, wrote uh, a note to eight of his, uh, you know, if they were friends before, they weren't friends after this, uh, but eight men, and he wrote just an anonymous note and says, all is discovered, flee at once just to see what they would do. <laughs> and it is said that all eight men left England. <laughs> Gone. Why is that? They had secret sin in their life. There were things in their life that nobody knew about. Listen, they were not living in truth. That's what it comes down to. If you are not living in truth, your conscience is a mess. Your soul is racked with guilt and you're hiding it. There, man, just throw the door open and invite Satan in. That's not spiritual warfare. You cannot serve that master and the Lord Jesus. 
It's impossible. Listen, folks, if you have a life that's really living in the truth, you leave very little room for Satan to gain a foothold. If you leave a life where there aren't any skeletons in your closet that are unaddressed, now all of us have past sins. That's not what I'm talking about. Past sins that have been confessed and repented of, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things in your life that you know are there, you know are unaddressed, you know God is displeased with, you know that Satan could take it and use it at any moment to ruin your testimony, and yet you still choose not to address it. Listen, if he addresses it, it's going to be a mess. If you address it, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be a lot better than if Satan takes the opportunity to expose it. Are you living in truth? Are you wearing the belt of truth? Is your life characterized by truth? Nothing so enables you to face the accuser of your soul like a clean conscience. I remember, this isn't in my notes, but I'll tell you the story. When I was in seminary, I had a friend who ordered a set of commentaries. Those of you who have been around here for a long time know this story. A set of commentaries that are in my office today. They're a six-volume set of Greek commentaries, and uh, I, I, I would never use them because of this story. He bought these commentaries and, uh, and uh, paid for them uh, by, uh, over the mail or Internet. I'm not sure we had Internet back in those days, but um, somehow he paid for them, and uh, they didn't show up. And so we waited and waited and waited, and we're at DTS together, and we'd meet in the mailroom every day and, and talk in the student center. And, and these commentaries didn't show up and didn't show up and didn't show up. So he, he called back, and he said, listen, my commentaries haven't shown up, and I've paid for them. And they said, not a problem, and uh, we'll, get, we'll get a new set to you. And we'll figure out what happened to the old one, and don't you worry about that. And sure enough, the next day, a new one arrived. And he was great. Wow, that's great service. He got a new set of commentaries. Two days later, the first set arrived. And I didn't have any knowledge of this, uh, the, the story at the time. But he comes to me and he says, hey, look here, i got an extra set of commentaries. You want these? And I said, are you kidding? I mean, I'm a theology student. Of course I want these commentaries. And he gave them to me and I took them and I thanked him and I was just all goo-goo about these free commentaries. And then I found out later, he never paid for them. And the supplier had been duped. And I don't think he intended to do that. I think it was uh, an oversight on his part. But here, now I've got a problem. I've accepted a gift from a friend, and I'm in a really awkward position, because for me to take him back, I'm going to have to accuse him of doing something immoral. I didn't want to do that. And so what did I do? Well, I patched that up by doing something immoral, right? I kept them. And I put them on my shelf, and every time I needed them, I wouldn't use them. It was like, uh, you know, the telltale heart. Kadoom, 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 kadoom. Don't touch those. You didn't, you know, you hypocrite. You haven't paid for those. I kept those commentaries for years. And one day I decided I can't live like this. I can't call myself a pastor and not deal with this issue. Besides that, I want to use these commentaries and the Holy Spirit won't let me use them. You know, it's kind of antithetical or hypocritical to go grab a commentary on the Word of God and knowing that you're sinning doing it. And so uh, they came from uh, Christian book distributors and I wrote them a letter and I said, um, Here's the story. Here's what happened. It was kind of a lengthy letter. And uh, I checked on your catalog, and uh, uh, they cost $50. And here's, you know, all I got is another $10 on top of that. So here's a, here's a check for $60. And I didn't hear anything back from them. And uh, about six months, three to six months later, I get this letter. Mr. Kirk, thank you for your check. 
uh, and your letter, we've never received anything like this before, and we didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> and so we apologize for being late in a response, but here is a gift card for $60. Thank you so much for your honesty. Lord bless your ministry. And it was done. And you know what? Uh, I can use my commentaries now. <laughs> you talk about freedom. I look around and I say, you see all these books in my commentary? I can use all of them in my library. And they're not a one of them I can't use. And why? Because in that sense, I'm living in the truth. You've got to put on the belt of truth, beloved. You've got to put on the belt of truth. Well, truth be known, I am not going to finish this sermon. <laughs> um, but if we don't get anything else from this, this is foundational. Are you living in the truth? You know, there may be things that you think God wants you to do for his glory that he's not giving you the freedom to do because there's something in your life that you know you have to address. And you've never addressed it. You may be thinking, where's the blessing of God? I mean, I don't want to be a millionaire, but I can't understand why I can't get out of this rut. It doesn't necessarily mean you're in sin, but it might be. It might be. It may be God just wants you to struggle to, to trust him for a while. That could be. But maybe there's sin in your life. Maybe you're not walking in the truth. Maybe you're not walking in the truth. Listen, if you're not walking in the truth, then you've just opened yourself for the devil. Do not be uh, unaware of his schemes. He is using this as a foothold in your life to ruin your testimony, to ruin your relationships perhaps with those who are closest to you. Don't do it. Confess it. Own it. Repent of it. And begin walking in the truth. Everything else is secondary. All of these other pieces of armor are built on this one, the belt of truth. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks today.